Let's open our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 12, please. Last week, when we were reading this passage, uh, I called the sermon last week the unexpected Savior because we saw Jesus encountering people and we saw him responded to in two very distinct ways and both ways that he was reacted to or responded to showed that the people were not really expecting what they got. In verse 9, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, we saw that Jesus had gone into synagogue and he healed a man who had a withered hand. But what made that particularly notable, I guess, was that Jesus had performed that healing on the Sabbath and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, had... uh, kind of set the whole situation up, it looks like, to have an opportunity to accuse Jesus. Because Jesus of Nazareth was not what they were looking for when it came to their expectations of Messiah. They actually quite hated him and resented him and were threatened by him, and so they sought to destroy him. And so they thought a way that they could destroy him was try to set him up to do something that would offend all of the people, which would be to work on the Sabbath. And what Jesus did, of course, was took the occasion to correct their thinking about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not supposed to be an instrument of religious legalism and self-justification. The Sabbath was a way, yes, to honor God and was codified into the law, but it was actually a gift, right, that God had given to men because God himself created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh and granted sort of a universal rest to everyone uh, seven, one in seven days, right? So God himself didn't just work every day in creation. Not that God needed a rest, but God took that rest and then instituted that right from the very first week of existence, all right? And, um, of course, the Pharisees interpreted that wrongly. And people still today interpret that wrongly, trying to, in some places, wield sort of a legalism over people and saying that. And that's not the point of it at all. So Jesus corrected their thinking, gave the real understanding of goodness and godliness in rebuking the Pharisees and said, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, right? And then healed this man. And it was tremendous. It was powerful. Right? And of course, they immediately plotted to destroy him. Then, where we are today, in verse 14, uh, verse 14 is what says that they plotted how they might destroy him. And then, in the ensuing verses, we saw what? We see that great multitudes followed him. And before I say a prayer and read this entire passage... 
I want you to think about something. I want to ask you a question. Uh, what is the difference between these two groups of people? What is the difference between the Pharisees, the religious leaders who tried to destroy Jesus, and the multitudes then who followed him? Well, you can think of lots of differences. Obviously, one is a class of religious rulers who wield great power and authority over all of the people. And the other is not. The other is just the masses, the multitude of people who are under the authority of their, of their religious leaders and, and teachers. And, you know, obviously one group was trying to destroy him and the other group was willing to listen to him. So there are some differences. But really, what is the difference between those two groups of people? When you really boil down to it and where they stood before the Lord, I would suggest to you that deeply within them, there's no difference between them at all because they were sinful. I mean, you might be tempted to look and to say, well, the religious leaders were wicked sinners because they disrespected Jesus, didn't believe he was the Messiah, and actually attempted to destroy him, right? But you look at the other people and you see that they followed him, right? But were the multitudes that followed him, were they sinless people? Were they? We know that they're not. We know, without even knowing one of them individually, we know enough from Scripture to know that we're all sinful and they fall into that as well. You know verses like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, that's very famous. But, you know, as we like to review here all the time, all you need to prove that we're all sinful is a review of God's commandments. You know, and the commandments, even just the first ten, let alone the other six hundred, uh, there, there's, you know, God says, no other gods before me. You won't worship anyone else. You don't make any statues and, and, and idols and icons, you know, with men's hands. To worship, it's idolatry. That's sinful. You don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's sinful. You remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's which they had corrupted in the previous part of the passage. But but that that's a, a sin to, to, to violate that. Um, you honor your father and your mother. The first commandment with a promise that you're that it will be well with you and you have long life on the earth, right? And don't murder and don't commit adultery. And adultery is a specific thing, but there's the whole myriad and banner of, of sexual immoralities that the Bible describes. And uh, Jesus even said, if you just look at someone and, and think lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? And uh, don't lie and don't steal and don't covet other people's wives, don't covet other people's Houses don't covet other people's farm animals. Don't can modernize that. Don't covet other people's cars. Don't covet other people's jobs. Don't don't covet anything that belongs to anybody else, right? And so when you review those commandments, if you review it for yourself, obviously, as we've stated many times, what that does for me is it sentences me as a guilty man, because whether in actuality or even in just the spirit behind that commandment. I've broken every one of those commandments in my life. It's not good that I've broken every one of those commandments in my life. I should not break any of those commandments in my life, but I've broken every one of those commandments countless times. right? And 
if any one of you considers for yourself God's law, hopefully you'll realize the same thing and come to that same conclusion. And so what we need is God's grace. What we need is what Jesus would eventually, from where we are in the story of Christ here, what Jesus would eventually go on and do is die for sin, die for all of our sins and rise from the dead. We need that cleansing in His blood. You just sang about it, about wonder-working power in the blood of Jesus. What is the wonderful work that is done in the lives of people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is the cleansing of their sin. As elsewhere, the scripture makes very clear, the blood of Jesus cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. You think of blood in its physical sense as being something that stains things, and blood stains last a long time. I was reading an article this week about um, my older brother lives up near Milford, Pennsylvania, there's a museum in Milford, Pennsylvania that has one of the Lincoln flags. Do you know what the Lincoln flags are? The, Abraham Lincoln, when he was assassinated in 1865, he was in the presidential box at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. And uh, one of the things that happened was uh, the many flags that were draped around all this. The nation was very excited. And uh, um, uh, there were American flags everywhere and all sorts of bunting and everything else. And, and, and Lincoln's head was placed on a wrapped-up American flag as a pillow. And the descendants of the actress who put that flag under his head eventually resettled in Milford, Pennsylvania. And that flag, that very flag, without any, no historian has any reasonable doubt about it, is on display in a museum in Milford, Pennsylvania. And the thing that makes it telling is Lincoln's blood stains are still on that flag from that day that he was shot, right? So you read about blood and how it stains, but the blood of Jesus, what? The blood, of, it's a, of such a profound and, and, and unusual statement. The blood of Jesus is actually a cleansing agent. The blood of Jesus is not a staining agent, though physical blood itself does that. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. And so what we need is to be washed from our sin. And it is Jesus shed blood applied to the account of our sin, when we repent and believe the good news, that's when the blood of Christ washes away our sins. That's what we need. So, all of that to explain that even though you had a group of people, religious leaders, who were on the attack uh, to destroy Jesus, and you had these multitudes who were uh, following him, Deep down inside, where they stood before God was the same, was it not? We've all broken His laws. And because we've broken His laws, we stand condemned in and of ourselves. Now, with that stated, here's really where they were different. They were not different because these people were sinners and these people weren't. They were all sinners. Here's where they're different. These people were proud. And because they were proud... They were blind. These people were not. These people were what? They were believing. They were humble and they were believing. They all saw or were aware of, at that moment, the healing of the man in the synagogue with the withered hand. Right? And what the healing of that man did for the one particular class 
was cause them to harden their hearts in pride and plot to destroy Jesus. What it did for the other people was it brought them a sense of awe and humility and even fear of God and caused them to follow Him, which is exactly, literally what this passage says. So when Jesus went out, they followed Him. And so therein, brothers and sisters, before I even pray and read this, therein is... I believe, listen very carefully to this, because this is, this is the crux of like our existence as Christians here. There is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Not saying that all these people ended up being Christians, we, we don't know that. But, but there's pride and there's humility. And of course the proverb says what? That God resists the proud, but gives His grace to the humble. Not God resists the sinful and the wicked, but gives His grace to the righteous. Sometimes that's how the world thinks of it. God resists those who do evil, but God gives His grace to those who do good. That's not, that's sometimes how it gets thought of, and that's false. That's not true. There is none who truly does good. Sure, there's, we'll do good things and we do good things, and we help each other, and we love each other, and that's fine. But nobody does good things to the extent that they can justify themselves before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Only God is truly good in that sense of perfect righteousness that has the ability to stand and be in His presence. Only God. You know, we'll say so-and-so is a good guy, so-and-so is a good lady, and we mean that in a relativistic sense. There's nothing relativistic about it when you talk about God. When it comes to God, God is good, truly good, right? Because He's holy and because He's righteous. And so these people, they had stirred up in them a sense of fear. So it's not that God resists the evil and loves the good, it's that God resists the proud and gives His grace to the humble. And there's the difference. The people in the first part of this passage, they were proud and sought to destroy Him in the hardness of their hearts. The people in the second half of the passage, the multitudes, they had a more humble spirit and they followed Him. And when we read this, we'll see what goes on there. Uh, I call this passage, this part of the passage, the mission. Because what you see in this passage is Jesus' incredible focus on His mission. And this differentiation between these peoples, the proud and the humble, the unbelieving and the faithful, the believing, right? The, 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 the difference in that is what it's all about. Jesus did not, this will sound harsh when I say it, but you can see that it's true. Jesus did not waste much time worrying about the proud and their opinions of Him and even their plots to destroy Him. Did you hear what I said? Jesus did not waste much time and energy worrying about what His opponents thought of Him. What Jesus did was He focused on what? The mission, which was to reach out with God's message of what He was going to accomplish, the gospel what he would accomplish on the cross when he shed his blood and rose from the dead. Jesus concentrated on reaching out to those humble, believing multitudes that followed him seemingly wherever he went. Jesus' focus was on the mission. And the mission was to go after the humble that they might have the opportunity 
to hear the gospel and to believe and to be saved. And that's us. Jesus did not waste time worrying about what the proud and the self-serving thought of him. He went after the ones that God sent him after, those lost sheep, those ones who would humble themselves and believe. Let us bow before the Lord and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we have before us today your word. We pray that you would help us to learn from it, help us to worship you by listening to it and believing it, I pray, Lord, anything that we might hear today that might shape our character or shape our understanding, and certainly anything that would shape our conduct would be received by all of us who hear your word today, and that you would grant to us through the Holy Spirit in us strength to be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. We thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, for anyone maybe who is in here today who has not received Christ and become a child of God. Maybe today would be the day that they hear and this message of your gospel just really clicks with them, for lack of a better way of saying it. And Lord, that you would grab hold of their hearts, you who must draw all people to yourself. And I pray that they would come and repent and believe the gospel and be saved today, Lord God. We pray that you would do your work through your word, by your power, for your glory in your church here today. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, let me read, starting in verse... Well, verse 14 in Matthew chapter 12 is really a a tag on to the last passage. Then the Pharisees went out, that is, they went out from the synagogue where this Sabbath miracle had occurred. They went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Verse 15 now, ready? But when Jesus heard it, he chased after them and tried to convince them and show them why they were wrong. Oh, no, that's not what it says. Right? Not what it says. What does it say? When Jesus knew it, he split. He withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him. And he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Do you see, even if you weren't to go through the details of all of this, which obviously we're going to, do you see the big picture there? It starts right in the beginning when it says Jesus withdrew, went out, left, right? You know, some view that, some might view that as Jesus fled from them because he didn't feel safe. I don't think there was any 
fleeing from anybody on Jesus' part ever because he didn't feel safe. It wasn't Jesus' time yet to die. He knew that. Jesus was focused on his mission. He withdrew, I would submit to you, because he was a practitioner of his own teaching. Do you remember earlier when he sent his own disciples out, what did he say to them? When you enter a city, go in and seek out a place, and if they receive you, let your peace remain there, and you stay there. And if they don't receive you, what? Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them and go somewhere else. So Jesus is basically just practicing what he preached. He's not fleeing for his life because he's in danger. He's leaving because... Even though he just performed this great miracle in the synagogue, because of the hardness of the people's hearts, and the religious leaders' hearts especially, nobody wanted to listen to a word he said. You want to listen? Guess what? There are multitudes, masses, who need to hear this. And he left. And guess what happened when he left? Those multitudes followed him. Which is what the passage says. So, I think starting right with that, and then going all the way to the end of it, which is this idea, this quotation, this this wonderful connection to uh, Isaiah chapter 42, I think it is, um, this this beautiful connection to to what the prophet says. Uh, Actually, Matthew says it's a fulfillment of what the prophet said, which says that uh, no one's even going to hear his voice in the street. says what? He's not going to quarrel. He's not going to argue with anyone. He's not going to waste time arguing with people. He's not going to stand out in the streets streets, screaming about this and screaming about that. Oh, he'd stand out in the street and preach the gospel. That he would do. But he's not going to stand out in the streets arguing with people about this, arguing with people about that. He's not going to spend his whole life just raising all sorts of irrelevant arguments and controversies and disputes about this or that. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, right? Nor a smoking flax he will not quench. I mean, the most basic of little elements that would be used to make things. A bruised reed, he won't even break. A smoking flax, he won't even use his feet. In other words, he's not going to waste any time. That's the idea. Jesus isn't going to waste any time, what? Till he sends forth justice to victory, which is a reference to his sacrifice when he died for our sins and his victory when he rose from the dead and what that would ultimately produce, which is, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. And the word Gentiles, it has you know, kind of that dualistic meaning. There's the kind of the specific use of the word Gentile to refer to anyone who wasn't a Jew. But literally what the word Gentile means is simply people of the world. So when it says in, the, in His name, the Gentiles will trust, the idea is that even beyond His own nation and His own people, the people of the whole world would come to understand the gospel and to believe in Christ. Christ. Jesus was focused on what? His mission, wasn't He? He wasn't going to stop and waste His time fighting with these proud, blind, hard-hearted Pharisees. Because that wasn't his mission to do that. His mission was, number one, to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And number two, to preach and to teach to those whose hearts were soft and whose hearts were humble and whose hearts God had quickened and God had brought to himself, whose hearts were humble and faithful and believing. And you know, you know, he, he could barely do one miracle in that synagogue, right? 
I mean, he had to like practically apologize for the fact that he was going to heal one guy with a withered hand because it was the Sabbath. And he had to give this big, long explanation because he saw the hardest of the hearts. But then when he went out from there and the multitudes follow him, how many people did he heal? It doesn't say, but it simply it doesn't say a specific number, but it says all of them. See, Jesus wasn't going to waste his time with those who had no interest in what he was really about. That doesn't explain it well. Jesus was not going to waste his time with those who were so hard in their hearts that they were actually fighting against him with no reason or no cause other than he was an affront to their pride. Instead, Jesus was focused on his mission. And that's what that prophecy means. That he's not even going to put out a, a, a burning, dry piece of hay with his foot. He's not even going to waste his time with that. His mission was to send forth justice unto victory. Right? Justice. What's the justice that Jesus came to bring? Not like an earthly sense of social justice. The justice that Jesus came to bring is one thing. And that one thing, that one sense of justice is God is holy and just and sin must be punished. And when Jesus died on the cross, that was a gracious, compassionate act, merciful act of God's justice. God was pouring out His justice, His just wrath upon all of our sins. Do you understand that? Jesus came to send forth justice, the justice of God the Father, having poured out on Him Himself the penalty for our sins, and send it forth to victory. Victory! He rose from the dead, and now, like you just sang before, there is power in the blood of Jesus to save people from their sins who repent and believe. Justice to victory, and in His name, all the people of the world, all the Gentiles will believe. That was Christ's mission. And that's what Christ focused on. And thank God, quite literally, and thank God only, exclusively, that Jesus did it. He also exemplified ministry for his followers. Did he not? In, contained in these couple of little sentences here, I mean, verses 18 through 21 are a quotation of the, the prophecy, which I, I think I've made the connection for you. But, but there's, a, there's a great exemplification of gospel ministry that is made just in verses 15, 16, and 17. Just, just in those couple of sentences. I actually looked through the passage and I found five examples of things here that I want to share with you and look up some other passages of Scripture so we can see because, you know, there, there, there's teaching. In addition to Jesus simply doing what He did and going on to purchase our salvation the way He did, He gave an example for us to follow, right? When Jesus came to earth, why didn't He just immediately die and go back to heaven? Why didn't He just... If His, if his mission was only to die for our sins and rise from the dead and go back to heaven, why did he wait 33 years to do it? Why, why are there three years of his life, the last three years of his life on earth, why are they recorded in this book for us? Well, to leave us an example. 
right? We ought to want to be like Christ. As John the Apostle wrote in one of his epistles, if, if we call Christ our Lord, we ought to what? Walk as He walked, right? And this, this passage of Scripture gives us some examples of things. And I've, I've mentioned them all already, but now let's, let's make application here in the Word for ourselves. First of all, He moved on from opposition, right? He did not become entangled. He, would not, he did not become embroiled. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and told Timothy, no one who's a good soldier of Christ was the, ideal, was the idea, entangles himself in the affairs of this life. But as a good soldier, he keeps himself untangled up by all of these things in his life that he may please his master and please his leaders. I'm paraphrasing that. You read that in Paul's epistles to Timothy. But he said, the good soldier does not become entangled. He remains devoted to his master. And Jesus here is exemplifying that for us. Because he's focused on his mission. We ought to be focused on our mission. Our mission is to reach people with the gospel that Christ, through other people, has reached us with. That's our mission, is to reach out. That's the mission of the Christian, just as it was the mission of Christ in those three years before he died for us, just as it was the mission of the apostles. There's another good example of this in the life of one of the apostles, well, it's Paul, again, that I want you to see. Turn to Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. Jesus moved on from opposition. By the way, I'm not suggesting that there's never a time where you need to stand and resist something. There's plenty of that as well. Read that tiny little book of Jude in the Old Testament, and it tells us that we ought to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to all of the saints, right? So, so when there are, especially within the church, false teachings and things like this that are going on that are corrupting the words of the gospel or in the book of Galatians, where obviously that is written to uh, uh, contradict the false teaching that works, religious works were also needed to be saved, that believing, having faith in the Lord Jesus was not enough, you also needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. The whole book of Galatians is a contention with that false teaching where the Apostle Paul wrote, if anyone comes to you preaching any other gospel, let him be accursed, right? So there is a time when you have to stand. But much discernment is needed because we need to remember the mission. See, those contentions that I was just talking to you about, those were contentions for the gospel, we do fight for the gospel. What happens is Christians get, modern day Christians, and things like social media and such, they facilitate it, they stir it up. They're like a great vacuum that sucks people into it and gets their hearts and their minds off of the mission. But what Christ contended for was the gospel. What the apostles, when they did find themselves contending, what they were contending for was the truth of the gospel. We get all wrapped up in fighting. I can name a whole bunch of things. I won't bother. You can use your imagination. Think of it yourself. We get all wrapped up in fighting over this, fighting over that, fighting over this, fighting over that. What happens is we get distracted. Our spirits get crushed. We stir up contentions among each other when we're supposed to love each other. And, you know, all of that was something that Jesus himself in his own life did not get wrapped up in. Yes? What did I say? Acts 18.1? So listen to this. 
After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So Paul comes to Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Focused on his mission, right? That's what he, was, that's what he had come to do. When it says he persuaded both Jews and Greeks, it's referring to the fact that he preached that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and the only way of salvation for Jew or Greek. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed him, what did he do? He shook his garments. Sounds like what Jesus taught, right? And Paul, listen, Paul was not a believer in the early days. Certainly when Jesus was on earth, and, and, and Paul was a very young man then, but certainly after Jesus had gone back into heaven in the life of the apostles, among the apostles, Paul was a persecutor. Paul was one of those Pharisees. In fact, right? But here's Paul being very Jesus-like. It says, He shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. How close is that? to the passage that we read in Matthew. I mean, literally, he's in a synagogue. Literally, he's being resisted by the religious leaders. And literally, he does just what Jesus does. He withdraws. Because he's not going to waste his time in the face of those who are hard-hearted and proud and unbelieving and disrupting. Why? Because he knows what his mission is. He said it back in verse 4. He persuaded both Jews and Greeks. That was his mission. Right? So when they opposed him and blasphemed, listen, there's nothing wrong with making a defense when people oppose, but this was more than they just opposed. They opposed and they blasphemed. In other words, this wasn't just they didn't get it and they needed some things cleared up, and so they opposed it. This was they actively fought against it. They blasphemed. They, they deliberately tried to undermine what Paul was doing and stand against it. So Paul said, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, what did he do? He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God. Look at this. You know this, right? Whose house was next door to the synagogue. So he didn't go very far. He goes next door to Justice's house. Now look at this in verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, got himself a lawyer and sued Paul for... Oh, no, 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 that's not what happened. Crispus, the lawyer of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. See, sometimes there's a principle there. Sometimes we worry that if we don't just dig in and get engaged in all of the nonsense and all of the useless fighting that goes on, sometimes we worry about what people will think of us. We seem disengaged. We're not willing to fight. Sometimes when we don't get ourselves dragged in to a bunch of useless arguing and wrangling that never goes anywhere, we're worried that our esteem will somehow be knocked down, we'll look like we're cowards, or we'll look like 
You know, we have all sorts of we have all sorts of fears. Paul just left. But you notice that when Paul left the synagogue, God did not leave Paul. When Paul did what was right, was, which was disentangle himself and disengage from the useless wranglings of men that were happening in that synagogue, God remained with him so much that God, by His sovereign power and sovereign grace, opened up the heart and the understanding of the synagogue ruler to believe. And he left the synagogue and followed Paul to Justice's house next door. Paul focused on the mission. God remained very powerfully with Paul. Is there a lesson in that? Yep. So, there's more. It says, it says, he believed on the Lord with all of his household. So not just him, but his whole family came along with him. And understand what that, I didn't want to get too much into the details here, but understand what that means as well. When it says he believed with all of his household, believed on the Lord with all of his household, it means that those in his household individually believed. Because you don't believe for your family, right? I mean, I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I know that spiritually I'm the leader of my family. But I can't crawl inside them and be them. So I can lead them and I can point them and when they're, especially when they're young, I can insist that they do certain things. But ultimately, it has to come from within them for faith to be authentic and real. Right? Because God doesn't save groups. God saves individuals. God's temple is those individuals in whom the Holy Spirit believes. Now, we are a body collectively. But collectively, we are individuals who have believed and I didn't want to drag into the details there, other than to point out, it just makes it more remarkable to me that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed, and so did everyone in his household. It's great. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. I'll, I, I won't, just for time's sake, I won't but make a passing reference to the fact that that's how baptism was practiced. I don't know how it was done, I don't know if they went down to a river or went down to the lake or they had big tanks or I don't know what they did, but that's how it was done. When somebody believed, they got baptized. Um, that's not what saved them, but that was the outward expression of the faith that they had, is they got baptized. If you need to be baptized, you ought to be baptized. So you step forward, you come to me, and you say, Pastor Lou, I believe and I need to be baptized. And I don't care. You know, I baptized someone in the ocean not too long ago. We, we have a tank right in the church where we can baptize people. There's all sorts of... It's not baptizing a swimming pool. I don't care. That's not the manner and the mode. What matters is if you believe, you should do it. They did it right on the spot. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Don't be afraid. See, see, you, see you see the Lord still with Paul? He didn't speak to Paul and say, go back to that synagogue, you coward. Go back there and stand and spend, if necessary, the rest of your life resisting them. Nope. This is a great word of affirmation of the fact that Paul had left 
and gone next door. Listen, don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. And you know what? I really, in the depths of my soul, when he says I have many people in this city, what he, the gospel was still fairly new in Corinth, right? Obviously, Paul had just arrived there. When he says, I have many people in, that, in this city, that's a reference to God's election. That is a reference to the fact that God, before time began, chose us, before we even existed, chose us in him. And when Paul is told, I have many people in this city, what he is saying to Paul is, there are many people here who are my elect, and you're going to preach, and they're going to get saved. I have no doubt whatsoever that that is exactly what he's talking about in that passage, which is a marvelous thing. Paul, Paul, by leaving the... Listen, Satan's tool, one of Satan's tools is to entangle us and embroil us in things that are never going to go anywhere. Paul, by walking away from that, is met personally by the Lord and told, I got a lot of people here who are going to get saved and you're going to talk, no one's going to hurt you, you're going to talk, you're going to speak, don't be silent and they're going to get saved and they're going to come to me through you. Because he left the waste of time and he went to where the Lord wanted him to be to reach people. You follow that? What a great passage of Scripture. Look what verse 11 says. And he continued there. He didn't just like stay there for the weekend. You know? He didn't just stay there for a couple of weeks. He stayed there for 18 months. He's, Paul's mission was not to go and just live anywhere permanently. That's not You know that. You read the book of Acts. You know, Paul's mission was to go from place to place to place and, and preach the gospel where it had not been preached before. That's what he said about his own ministry. I'm not going to go and lay on somebody else's foundation. I'm going to go somewhere where the gospel's never been preached and that's where I'm going to preach. That was Paul's mission. Paul spent a year and a half in this place. Wow. Teaching the word of God among them, which is probably a dual ministry of still evangelizing and reaching out with the gospel, but mostly just doing this. Just standing up, God building his church, God adding to those who would be saved through the preaching of the gospel, and Paul standing there and making disciples by teaching them the word of God. Isn't that great? But it started with what? It started with Paul being very Christ-like when Christ was in that synagogue and not getting himself entangled in the fact that they were really just plotting to destroy him, but leaving and going out, withdrawing from that place, and then the multitudes following him. Same thing happened. Paul leaves the synagogue, says, you know, blood's on your own hands, I'm going to the Gentiles from now on, and the Lord blesses that. The Lord actually inserts himself into the story and affirms what it is that Paul does and uses Paul to lead many people to Christ and raise up that church. Because he didn't get entangled with the proud. He withdrew and went to the humble, the believing. You see? There a lesson in that? Back to Matthew. Number two. I've, again, I've already pointed this out. 
again, I want you to see an example of it in Scripture. What the passage in Matthew 12 teaches us is that he, when he withdrew, it says, great multitudes followed him. What is that following of him? That following of him is because, unlike the religious leaders in the synagogue, they believed. Now, I don't know that all of them like became Christians or anything like that, but so far, what they had heard and what they had seen, they believed it enough that wherever he was going to go, they were going to go. There was going to be more healing, there was going to be more preaching, and there was going to be more teaching. Christ's focus on the mission was to reach and make believers. And may I say to you, that continued to be God's mission among the apostles and continues to be God's mission today. To reach and make believers. Go back to Acts. Go to chapter 5. I'll start reading it and you'll wonder, why is he reading this? But by the time I get done with it, you'll know. Acts chapter 5 and verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. So they, they basically the idea is everyone else in the church, including Barnabas, was uh, selling off property and bringing all of the proceeds from their sale and laying it at the apostles' feet in the presence of all the church, which was encouraging other people it was, it was glorifying God, but to the carnal person, it was also getting attention for the person who was doing it. And the implication, though not explicitly stated, is that Ananias and Sapphira wanted in on that attention. So they went and they sold the piece of land, but they didn't do like everybody else did, which was brought it in. They, they, they played it like they were giving the entire thing. Okay? There's nothing wrong with selling a piece of land and for your own benefit and your own profit and giving a little bit of it away. There's nothing wrong with that. Their sin was they lied to the Holy Spirit by trying to convey that they were being just like everybody else who was bringing the whole thing up in front of the church. So he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, brought a certain part that laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter saw right through it. Holy Spirit helped him see that. Ananias, why is Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the peace price of the land for yourself. While it remained, wasn't it your own? There was nothing wrong with, with keeping it. After you sold it, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Right? Then Ananias, hearing these words, died, fell down, breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, as you might expect. Right? I mean, like, that's, you know... Come, come to our church, people die when they lie. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes back, didn't know what happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you did this. She said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Then the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, 
buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church, as you might expect, and upon all those who heard these things. Notice the two groups of people, right? There's the church, those are the people who are already believers, and upon all those who heard these things, that extends it beyond the church to anybody who happened to hear about what happened. Now, verse 12, what's the epilogue of that account? And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Verse 13, ready for this? Yet none of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Now, when we say the rest, what are we doing? We're talking about a group of people that is distinct from another group of people, right? So who are the rest? I think the next verse makes it clear. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds, couches, at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them. A multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. It was like a parade from all the surrounding cities into Jerusalem with all these sick people. People were tormented by unclean spirits. And again, they were all healed. Amazing, right? But this all started with what? This church was not just y'all come on. You know, you know what I mean? This, 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 this church was not just like, let's get together and have some fun. I'm going to do this because I want. I'm going to do that because I want. Listen, this church was holy. And this was a church where Peter... Listen, I don't know what it felt like for Peter to say those words. I don't get the sense that Peter was haughty when he said to Ananias, uh, you haven't lied to men, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to guess that by that time, Peter had become like a really humble guy. And it was probably with some trepidation, knowing what was going to happen, that Peter said those words to that man. You understand? It was hard. It was hard to say that to that guy and watch him die. And then say the same to his wife and watch her die. Probably hard. But he did. Because God wanted him to. And God worked in conjunction with those words that Peter said. And God worked powerfully and sovereignly through all of that. And then you might think to yourself, what a great way to just kill a church, no pun intended. What a great way to just squash the ministry. I mean, I thought it was about grace. The guy told a lie. We all tell lies. I thought it was about grace. No, Peter said what the Spirit led him to say. And the man died and his wife died. And listen, what did this, what I want you to see is what God did. What God did, because great fear came upon anybody who heard about these things, whether in the church or not in the church. As a result, the miracles continued, and it says, none of the rest dared join them. Yet, many believers were added. So the rest are who? Non-believers. Right? The rest are contrasted with the believers who were added. So the idea is, because of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, God used that to keep the false, the unsincere, well, in the plainest sense, the unbelieving out and continued to add in the true, the believing. 
And you may think to yourself, well, that's going to keep a church really small. But what does it say? How many believers were added into this thing? Multitudes. Multitudes. So again, Jesus gave the example. Here's another example of it in the life of... You understand why I shared this now. Here's another example in the life of this church. Jesus did not get entangled in what was going on with the apostles. The, uh, what was going on with the Pharisees. Jesus did not get entangled. Same with the apostles in the church. They did not get wrapped up in this fraud, this deception, this dishonest dealing that was happening in front of them. Simply spoke, they died, and God blessed it. Do you understand? God's blessing was with that church. Do you understand? Because believers continued to be added, but none of the rest dared to join them. So number one, Jesus moved on from wasting his time with useless opposition. Number two, Jesus reached more believers as the apostles went on to reach more believers. Number three, go back to Matthew now. Number three, another example in Jesus. Jesus did not seek earthly fame or a kingdom. He did not seek earthly fame or a kingdom. Where is that told to us in these verses? Well, it says that in verse 16, what? He warned them not to make him known. Now, if the Lord had 21st century American marketing executives and advertising executives working for him, the Lord would have what? The Lord would have done everything he could to make this known. I mean, am I, am I not correct to say that this is pretty spectacular what was going on? He's out somewhere with all these multitudes and every one of them gets healed. And our view would be, if the Lord really wants to build something here, what He needs to do is get the word out. Right? Here comes that counterintuitive just the ways of Jesus being counterintuitive to the ways of men. Jesus does the opposite. He says, he warns them, not just tells them, but warns them. There's trouble, there's danger if you go telling people about this. Right? He warns them not to make them known. Why? Why did he warn them not to make him known? Because he was focused on what? Come on. Focused on what? He was focused on his mission. The same, all those other things. He moved on the op from the opposition because he was focused on his mission. He reached more believing multitudes because he was focused on his mission. He didn't here seek the fame and the, the easy, quick road to success that he could obviously have for himself because it wasn't his mission. He was focused on his mission. His mission was not to establish a kingdom at this time. His mission was to suffer and to die. Right? To suffer and to die. In, we went, as we were going through Matthew, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but back in Matthew chapter 4, you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? When he tempted him in the wilderness? You know, turn, turn these stones into bread. 
Jesus says man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds in the mouth of God. And then he takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple and he quotes scripture, right? Satan quotes scripture and says, you know, throw yourself down because it's written that, you know, angels will have charge over you. They won't let you dash your foot against a stone, right? And then, and Jesus talks about not tempting the Lord your God, right? And then, but then the third of those temptations was what? Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, it's all yours if you'll just serve me. Right? What did Jesus do? Get away from me, Satan. Quote scripture. But the important thing was that Jesus resisted the quick, the easy. And may I suggest something to you? I, it, it's a funny thing to talk about because God is sovereign and God is the ruler and God is in charge of everything. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, what you can see in creation gives him glory. He, he is. But in that sovereign rule, God has granted that Satan be, as the Bible calls him, the prince of the power of the air, which is a weird sounding title that basically means the kingdoms of this world and you can see it by the ways of the kingdoms of this world, they belong for a season, for now, to the devil. Do they not? That's why there is so much corruption. That is why there is so much wickedness. That is why the world is the way that it is. It's because the real prince, the ruler of this age, of this world, is the devil. And the kingdom of God is an invading kingdom that is growing within this kingdom as the gospel is being preached and as people are believing. And then one day the Lord Jesus will return and Jesus will establish his kingdom in those days and then righteousness and justice and everything will rule and prevail. Right? But for this time being, in other words, my point in saying all that is when, G, when, Paul, when Satan said, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. He had every right to say that. It was a very real temptation. And Jesus said what? No, 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 get away from me. Why? Focused on the mission. Why did Jesus tell these people, warn these people, don't make known what's going on here. Now, it's not that it wasn't worthy to be made known. Proof of that is we're reading about it today, right? So God, in His time, made sure that it was made known when the Word was written down by, in this case, Matthew. And so it could be reported on and thought about and used to edify us, right? But in that time, before Jesus had accomplished what He had been sent forth to do, uh, what? He warned them, don't you go telling, don't you go making this known. Because the possibility was that by force, the people, the multitudes, not the religious leaders, but the multitudes would take him and make him their king. Because they started to recognize messianic things in Jesus. Because they, didn't un they did not understand right. They were right in their thinking that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were wrong in their thoughts about what Messiah would be when he came. Jesus didn't come to establish the kingdom of David then. Jesus came to begin to establish the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus will return one day and will reestablish the throne of David. That will happen, right? But Jesus' purpose in coming, Jesus' mission, was not to become an earthly king when he came. And so he was focused on his mission and he did not let 
himself be distracted by the proposition of seeking and gaining earthly fame or an earthly kingdom. He was focused on his mission. Fourth, fourth, Jesus stuck with the plan. Number one, Jesus moved on from opposition because he was focused on his mission. Number two, Jesus reached out to the believing because he was focused on his mission. Number three, Jesus didn't seek any earthly fame or any earthly kingdom because he was focused on his mission. And number four, Jesus stuck with the plan because he was focused on his mission. What do I mean by that? Well, what's it say? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Listen, Jesus told them, don't go and spread all this around. Why? Because Jesus knew the plan of his father, which was written in the book of Isaiah. And that's where this quotation of Isaiah comes. And Jesus was not going to go outside of that. Look at these verses in Isaiah. I mean, how would you like to you know, go through your life knowing that ancient prophecies had been written about you that you were not going to go outside of Christ's course in this life, in his short life on earth, was charted out for him. Behold my servant in whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well. That's God the Father. That's Isaiah the prophet writing on behalf of God the Father, speaking about his son, his servant. Behold my servant in whom I've chosen, my beloved, right? When God spoke from heaven, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. There you see the Trinity at work together, right? God the Father speaking about his servant, the son, and putting the Holy Spirit upon him. There's the three persons of the Godhead, in case you're interested in that, which you should be. Um, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Twice it mentions justice to the Gentiles. Justice, as we explained before, the justice of the sin of the world being judged and Jesus himself receiving the punishment for it. That is the justice of God. That was the plan. It was not his plan, as verse 19 says, it was not the plan to argue or quarrel. It was not his plan to cry out, to stand in the streets and stand in the squares and cry out about the injustice of the Romans, to cry out about the taxation of the Romans, to cry out about the legions of the Romans, to cry out about the desecrations of the Romans. and the mis It was not his mission to do that. His mission was to come and to die. It was not his mission even to allow the people who loved him to make him their king. It was not his mission. He was focused on the plan. He stuck with the plan. The plan was, I am not even going to put out a smoldering little piece of hay with my feet. I am not going to cause any trouble. I'm not going to say a word. I have come here to preach and to teach, and I am going to give my life for the sins of the people that God's kingdom may begin to be built. His way, his way, his way. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Right? In Mark, I'm running out of time, so in Mark chapter 1, Jesus had healed a whole bunch of people. When they went to the house the next day, he was gone. They searched around for him. When they find him, he was all by himself praying. And they said, Lord, what are you doing? Everyone's looking for you. You know what he said? Okay, let's, let's go back and gather all the people up. No, 
He said, let's leave and go somewhere else because that's the purpose for which I've been sent to preach and to teach. Focused on his mission. In John chapter 13, he famously washes the disciples' feet and and Peter says, you're not going to wash me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Right? Why? Because Christ was focused on his mission. His mission, that washing of those disciples' feet, was a picture of how, one, they ought to love one another, and number two, what he would do for all of us. Right? By washing us from our sins in his blood. And in Luke chapter 9, I I don't have time, but if you you want to write this down and look it up, it's just such an interesting little story. Such a a, a human story. In Luke 9, verses 51 to 56, um, he went to a village of the Samaritans because he was on his way to Jerusalem, I think. And and, uh, uh, he had to stop and stay somewhere. And they did not receive him. And so a couple of his disciples, you know what they said? Let us call down fire from heaven to wipe them all out. Right? And Jesus said what? No. This isn't the reason for which I came. He said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to heal them, to save them. Why? Because he stuck with the plan. Because he was focused on his mission. Number one, he moved on from the waste of time, proud opposition, because he was focused on his mission. Number two, he reached out to the believers Because he was focused on his mission, didn't waste his time with the opponents. Number three, he didn't seek any earthly fame or an earthly kingdom right now because he was focused on his mission. Number four, he stuck with the plan because he was focused on his mission. And finally, finally, he is and will continue to reach the world. Success is not necessarily building a big church. As you know, I was in a very large church two weeks ago, and I was very pleased. I was very thankful that that church was there. So there's nothing arbitrarily wrong with being a big church. But do you know how real success before God is measured? Listen, listen, listen. By your focus on the mission. What's the last word in this passage in verse 21? And in his name, Gentiles will trust. That was his mission. Gentiles, the world. The world would be reached. And our part as his disciples is to be focused on that mission. We are here to reach the world. Not to squabble, not to argue, not to get entangled, not to fight. Yes, to defend and contend for the gospel, which is its own subject. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all of the, the useless wranglings of men, as the Bible calls it, that we get ourselves entangled up in. Christ exemplified not getting entangled up in those things. The apostles exemplified not getting entangled up in those things. Why? Because they were focused on the mission. The mission leading to that in His name, Gentiles will trust. Do you love the mission that the Lord has separated you unto? Do you love the mission that the Lord has separated this church unto? Do you love the Lord whose mission it is? Brothers and sisters, let us take the examples of our Lord Jesus 
and put them into practice in our lives. Let us be doers of his word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we've had this time together here today to listen to your word. And like I just exhorted my brethren and myself, help us, Lord, now to go and to put these things humbly into practice in our lives. Lord, if anyone has come in here today who needs to believe and be saved, I pray that they've clearly seen and heard put forth before them that the only way of salvation is through faith in you, Lord Jesus. They're sinful, like we all are, but they are sinful. The fact that we're all sinful doesn't, admon- doesn't exempt us or make it okay. The fact that we're all sinful means we're all equally condemned and in trouble before you. And I thank you, Lord, that you took it upon yourself, sacrificed your own son, put the weight of the punishment of all of our sin on your own beloved son, that through faith in you, anyone might have forgiveness and eternal life. And I pray that people would be drawn to you and come to you, believing on you, Lord Jesus, that they might be saved. Help non-believers become believers. Help believers become doers. By the power of your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.